It's 1950 and the dawning of the Cold War. Among the first victims of this conflict is religious freedom in communist countries. The church in Czechoslovakia faces increasing suspicion from the secret police. While in Utah, primary leaders hope to spark children's interest in the Book of Mormon, they turn to artist Arnold Freeberg. His majestic imagery expresses the powerful spirit within. The details behind these events are next in Chapter 35, We Cannot Fail. This is Saints, Volume 3, the podcast. Welcome to the Saints Podcast. I'm Shailen Back. And I'm James Perry. Joining us today is James Miller, a church history specialist in the church history department, and Laura Paulson Howe, the art curator over global acquisitions in the Church History Museum. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Glad to be here. Good to be here. James, it's great to have you back with us. And Laura, this is your first time on the Saints podcast. I think our listeners might be interested to know more about who you are. Will you just tell us a little bit about what you do in your role as a curator? I'd love to talk about it. So as the art curator at the Church History Museum, I collect items for the Church History Museum collection. I research those items and I craft stories about the artworks that we catalog and that we acquire. I also work with other departments to discuss the role of art in their work. We're excited to have you for particular topics in this chapter. Yeah, it'd be a good one. Well, to get started, let's turn our attention to Europe. And James, I wonder if you could begin by telling us about the challenges of researching and writing about the Cold War, particularly when so many Latter-day Saint scholars have a Western European or North American background. I think in general, historians constantly need to be mindful about how their own background and life experiences affect the way that they understand and interpret historical sources. So no matter what time period they're dealing with. And that can be difficult sometimes when scholars themselves are not entirely aware of what they need to be cautious of. One of the challenges here is that the people in North America, Western Europe, generally don't have a good understanding of what happened in communist countries during the 20th century. And that affects the way that we talk about the Cold War, the way that we talk about the different sides to this global confrontation. And that's one of the challenges coming from a North American or Western European perspective is how do you tell the story of the Cold War as it affects the church in a way that speaks to members of the church, no matter their background? Because Latter-day Saints in Western Europe experienced it in a different way than Americans. So maybe a couple of examples here. Many people notoriously but ignorantly use Soviet Union and Russia as synonyms. It was not the case. The Soviet Union was a diverse country, much more than Russia, certainly dominated by Russia, but not everyone was Russian. So when we talked about World War II, the Eastern Front, it wasn't the Russians. This is the Soviet army. When we talk about the Cold War, it was the Soviet Union, not just Russians themselves. Uh, another maybe term to just to throw out there, Eastern Bloc. The term Eastern Bloc became sort of a shorthand in the West for all the communist countries. But it's not that great of a term, actually. It's politically loaded. East doesn't really work well in the term because if you think about it, Czechoslovakia, which we'll talk about in this episode, I think, the capital of Czechoslovakia, Prague, is actually further west than Vienna, which we all recognize as a Western European capital. And at the same time, this idea of a block, we look at the communist countries as this massive, singular, monolithic entity that was against the West. 
while the West wasn't perfectly united and neither was the East, there was a diversity of experience there as well. It is incredibly difficult. And within the field of history as a subject, there have been criticisms leveled at scholars who do reduce people down to just broad categories and neglect the complexities and the intricacies of political organizations, but countries, societies. And I suppose for Latter-day Saint historians, who maybe, as we know right now, many of them are coming from the Western European or North American backgrounds, there's a lot of learning that's going to have to take place in order to enable them to adequately research and write about the church until Eastern Europeans themselves, as opposed to Western Europeans or North Americans, can write their own history. There's definitely a different perspective there. Not just only the terminology, we talked about terminology, but just the way that we view that time period. At the time, there weren't that many members of the church in communist countries. And the people who were keeping the records of the church mainly came from the same background. And so you'll see that in the historical sources of the church in the archives, the way they talked about the larger situation in Germany or in Czechoslovakia reflected the wider viewpoint of the United States or Western Europe, later NATO. I'll be interested to see in the future how Latter-day historians from these other countries will reflect back on that period. Well, James, you mentioned that members of the church had different levels of involvement in the Cold War. In the chapter, we read about President Toronto censoring copies of the Improvement Era that he sent to saints just to avoid inflaming the situation for them. We'd love to know from your perspective, how common was it for anti-communist materials to occur in church publications? Well, it was not uncommon. Several church leaders were very active and vocal in condemning communism, whether in official church publications or church-related literature. President David O. McKay, president of the church, Elder Ezra Taft Benson of the Quorum of the Twelve, were especially vocal in their opposition to communism. They saw it as antithetical to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and as well as the American values that they strongly embraced at the time. And in their minds, uh, there might have been quite a bit of overlap. The United States had served as the headquarters of the church since the early days of the Restoration. Religious liberty in the United States allowed the church space to grow and develop, and they saw restrictions on the practice of religion in communist countries generally as a threat to the ability of the restored gospel to spread around the world. In the American press especially, they wrote frequently about the persecution of Christian churches, whether in the Soviet Union or other countries, and so they were very alarmed by what they saw and read, and made their voices heard. In the story about the church in Czechoslovakia, it's surprising to see just how quickly things are changing and how aggressive the opposition seems to be against the church. And I wonder if you could give us any more insights into why in Czechoslovakia in particular, there was so much opposition to the church. Sure. And it's helpful here to compare the situation in Czechoslovakia to the German Democratic Republic, which we also read about in this volume of saints. The church there endures. There's thousands of Latter-day Saints just to the north in the GDR, and they're facing restrictions on their ability to practice their faith as well. In Czechoslovakia, it ended up being much, much worse. The church was, just to put it bluntly, was repressed by the communist government that came into power. The church wasn't necessarily singled out. It wasn't an anti-Mormon thing. The communist government that came to power in Czechoslovakia, like the other communist regimes in Central and Eastern Europe, sought to marginalize religion generally, to nullify the influence of churches as institutions in society. 
the communists saw churches as an alternative source of authority that undermined allegiance to the state. They saw it as a relic of the past as well that should fade away. And they actively tried to marginalize these institutions of faith. It may be another misperception of the way that this form of communism that was embraced in this region of the world at that time, the way that that operated, they didn't outright ban religion. They wanted to keep the appearance, at least, of religious freedom to show that this was some sort of natural shift away from faith to a rational way of life. But they created incentives for people not to go to church as well as actively persecuting certain religious institutions. So in Czechoslovakia, the communist government adopted laws that allowed them to essentially interfere in the affairs of religious institutions, whether it was the Catholic Church or our Czechoslovak mission. And so our church was really under the microscope, though, because of the ties between the church there and the United States. If religion in general was spewed with suspicion, then religion with foreign ties, especially over that Iron Curtain, that was very suspicious to them. They saw the missionaries as potential spies. They were all pretty much Americans. President and Sister Toronto were from the United States. Their elders were from the United States. I think the missionaries there were the largest number of Americans there for a single purpose other than the staff of the United States Embassy. And so that just raised red flags in the eyes of these government officials. Well, James, you were mentioning these restrictions, and we read in the chapter about how the saints were meeting privately. So we would love for you to talk a little bit more about how these types of restrictions affected the saints. So initially, when the communist government came to power, the church didn't immediately face restrictions in terms of meetings. They still had to get clearance for holding public meetings, but the church was able to continue holding worship services up until early 1950, when the government essentially forced out the missionaries. And by April, the mission was, I think they used the term liquidated. It was officially declared not a legal entity in Czechoslovakia. And so with that, holding public meetings for a religious organization that technically doesn't exist and that's connected to a foreign entity was very risky. It was not looked upon favorably by government authorities. And so the Latter-day Saints that were left behind in Czechoslovakia faced a difficult situation. On the one hand, we want to honor, obey, sustain the law. And they definitely didn't want to do anything that was against the laws of the country. On the other hand, this was their faith. They were a community. They wanted to worship together. And so there were some private meetings held quietly. They didn't invite the public or anything like that. They held these in each other's homes for a period of time. The Latter-day Saints in Czechoslovakia continued to baptize individuals who were converted to the gospel. But it was all done very quietly. It wasn't done very openly because, again, they faced a risk that they would be accused of spying for a foreign power. And the government did keep files on members of the church for suspected contacts with American citizens. Church History Department actually has copies of some of those files. Later on, after the end of communism, the family of Wallace and Martha Toronto actually went to Prague and they got copies of some of these files from the Czech archives. Well, thank you for sharing that, James. It must have been incredibly disruptive of their life, but also of their faith to suddenly no longer be able to meet freely and openly and to enjoy all of the benefits of publicly living their faith. And the irony is that the communist government passed a new constitution soon after it took power. And if I remember correctly, it promises the freedom to worship how they'd like and not to interfere with religions. And then there's a small caveat, and it's something like, as long as it doesn't affect the security of the state. 
And I think it was that small caveat which meant that they could, in effect, take control of religious organizations and try and stifle those which were in competition with the Communist Party. And we're going to find out more about what happens in Czechoslovakia in Volume 4 of Saints. But I wonder, James, if you could tell us how did the members react to the withdrawal of the missionaries and to the closing of the mission? I think whenever missionaries are withdrawn, it's a little bit disheartening, right? It's a signal that something's not right, that dark days may be ahead. But just as in World War II, the saints in Czechoslovakia assumed leadership of their own affairs. They looked after each other. They continued to visit each other where possible to check up on one another. I'm sure some members of the church, whether it was the pressure to disassociate themselves with the church or just because of the isolation, there were some members of the church who weren't as active in our terminology in practicing their faith, but many of them just endured. It's actually very inspiring to see how they stuck with this faith. They weren't a large group. There was just a few hundred of them in these years to come during the Cold War era. They stuck with it. There were examples of enduring to the end, we could even say. And I was touched to read how during the Second World War, the Czechoslovakian saints had built a little monument at the site where the country had been dedicated for the preaching of the gospel. And in the years of the communist government, they would continue to go there annually to meet and to remember the establishment of the church in their country. And I think you're right. These are just some incredibly faithful and dedicated Latter-day Saints in a circumstance that many of us would find hard to understand, let alone live through. Yeah, I completely agree. And that monument still stands today. Maybe that's just a little thing worth noting. So Czechoslovakia was dedicated by Elder Johnny Witso in 1929, July 24th, Pioneer Day. And like you said, they erected this monument during the war. And this becomes a tradition for the Czechoslovak mission, even though there's not an official mission of the church after 1950, 1951. The saints there try annually to go and meet there. It's a monument built of stones. And they have a metal plaque that they insert into this monument there. They don't leave the plaque there. They bring it with them when they go to the monument itself. So it's not stolen by thieves or defaced or anything like that. It's a reminder for them of the promises made, the blessings that were pronounced upon their country by an apostle of Jesus Christ. So they might feel isolated, but they're not cast off. That's such a good point. Well, Laura, thank you for joining us today. And we would love to talk about Latter-day Saint art. And I wonder, just as we finish talking about Czechoslovakia, do we know of any art that has come from church members in Czechoslovakia? How did the members of the church there represent their faith or their identity in a visual form? I love this question, James. And one reason that I think art is so important is that you have general members of their church expressing their faith in real tangible sort of ways. Um, So while all of this is going on institutionally, there's this fantastic story of a woman named Luba Prusak. And she joins the church during World War II as the Nazis have taken over. Her father is taken away to a concentration camp because he works for a newspaper and is publishing things they find distasteful. But she finds a missionary track among her father's research. She finds the missionary. She converts. She joins the church. 
And right as World War II ends, she finds herself under communism's influence and everything James has just been talking about. And so her story is a beautiful one. She's a nationally trained sculptor. She has a hard time finding work because she won't join the Communist Party. And so she's finding ways to survive. She has a young daughter and she continues meeting with members of the church. They often met in her studio, but she doesn't tell her daughter she's a member of the church in case she ever gets questioned. She won't know what she believes. And so it's just this fantastic story. She'll eventually leave and comes to the United States much later on and and continues creating art and sculpture just to express that faith of perseverance, of trying to have these important, she does these fantastic busts of Joseph Smith and Brigham Young and all these examples of perseverance that keep her going. So very often it's, it's these stories of saints all over the world that they're bearing testimony in their own visual language that's rooted in the circumstances that they're living. Laura, that's such an amazing connection and such a beautiful story. I mean, such a difficult life that she had, but it's amazing that what she was able to produce has been preserved and that it's something that we can continue to enjoy and learn more about her. Thank you for sharing that story. Of course. Well, to shift gears and talk about the art that's represented in this chapter, we would love for you to talk just a little bit about what the state of Latter-day Saint art in the mid-20th century is. That's a really good question, especially because what constituted Latter-day Saint art in 1950 is very different than what people imagine when they think of Latter-day Saint art today. There was no one in my position. There was no one consciously thinking about what Latter-day Saint art is or what it should be. And so art was kind of project driven. And most often people commissioning art at that time was in the context of temple building. So art from like 1830 until 1950, most Latter-day Saint art was either portraits of church leadership, which they hung in temples, or it was murals to give context to the temple endowment. And so landscape painting and church portraits, that's pretty much what Latter-day Saint art was all the way up until 1950. Very rarely did we depict scripture stories. Very rarely, even more so, did we depict the Savior. There was kind of a cultural taboo against painting the Savior in either 2D art or creating sculptures of the Savior. And so it was really very, very different. And so this is a really important moment to shift how Latter-day Saint art would look after the moment. And Arnold Freeberg was a big part of that. One other thing that had just happened in Latter-day Saint art was someone passed away named Alice Merrill Horn. She was the granddaughter of George A. Smith, who had been church historian and recorder and a member of the First Presidency, and Bathsheba Smith, who was the Fourth General Relief Society president. So she had all these important connections. And though she never had an official calling to acquire art, she had pretty much dictated what Latter-day Saint art should be and what Latter-day Saint art got collected between 1900 to 1950. And so when she passed away, it left a huge vacuum in the church for commissioning art. And there wasn't really someone to say, this is important. This is something that we should do. And so it wasn't as much of a priority specifically in 1950 than it had been in the decades before. Thank you for that fascinating overview there. In the chapter, we learn that there's a little bit of a reluctance about paying for Book of Mormon paintings. And you mentioned that they didn't really depict many of the stories. I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit of the reason behind that and why attitudes towards it were changing here in the 1950s. 
Sure. So part of it is what I just passed away is Alice Merrill Horn had passed away. And she was the one who had really agitated and said, art is important. Art reflects who we are. And she was also related to several of the church leaders. And so she had gotten a lot of art commissioned. So with her gone, um, there just wasn't a lot of enthusiasm to spend money or tithing money on art. The other thing is there was certainly a taboo against portraying the Savior. Scripture stories, it just didn't have a tradition. Previous to this time, the church hadn't really placed a priority on depicting scripture stories. Sometimes when they did figural painting, it was often a pioneer heritage to have this honor and these moments and trying to remember the sacrifices of pioneers coming to Utah. But they hadn't previously seen much of a use for scripture stories, as strange as that seems to us today. There were a couple moments previous to this time where they had started to commission some scripture stories, but nothing had really taken off in the way that certainly that these images would take off later. Well, thank you, Laura. That context is helpful to understand better. You know, as we read in the book, the primary general president at the time, Adele Cannon Howells, she had been trying to commission these Book of Mormon paintings for the 50th anniversary of the Children's Friend. And she just wasn't getting a lot of support and probably because of all these reasons that you just mentioned. But we were wondering, how did Adele eventually win people over to get this to happen? So Adele Cannon Howells was the primary general president, but at the time that also meant she was the editor of the Children's Friend. And so she was excited about this idea. Arnold Freeberg was new on the scene. He had just arrived. He was a magazine illustrator by profession. That's what he did. And she had a magazine that she wanted illustrated. And so she had this idea. It was her own pet project. And she really wasn't able to get a lot of traction. There wasn't money in the budget. She couldn't get the support of church leadership as much behind her. And so some of it she self-funded to make it happen. And so that was a hard one to, when you say to win over the support of people, she kind of made it happen on her own. She believed in the project. I think what's interesting in these two first church-funded projects to illustrate these stories, it was someone thinking of the children, trying to say, how do we make this exciting for kids to be able to picture these important stories? And because of it, she wanted these children to see these stories. She decided to throw her own finances behind it. I really love that, that you mentioned it was driven by this desire for children to have a better understanding. And I'm just thinking of when I'm teaching my kids, that is so helpful to have various art that depicts different scenes and it starts conversations, invites questions. So I just appreciate her efforts because it's made a big difference in my life. Yeah, this strong woman. You know, we always have these great women in leadership, these fantastic stories from the church. And Adele Cannon Hells is certainly one of those women who just made things happen by her power to organize, by her power to work and commission and see resources and bring things about. And you mentioned just a moment ago about Arnold Freiburg and him being a magazine illustrator. But I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about him as an individual and his style of painting. Where did his influences come from? Great question. And so there are lots of different ways to think about art at that time. And artists kind of trained to do something specific. And it was the great age of magazine illustrators was kind of coming to a close in the 1950s. He specifically went to school to become a commercial artist or a magazine illustrator. In the early 20th century, 
when you received a magazine, you didn't have these flashy pictures throughout it. Artists were specifically hired to illustrate stories in magazines that went around. Magazine illustrators were trained to focus on the most exciting, most action-packed part of that story. There's a great magazine illustrator maxim, which is you make epic the incidental. And so that was his training. And that's where he came from. Now, magazine illustration was starting to end at this time. So you had a whole bunch of artists who were trained this way. Probably the most famous one is going to be Norman Rockwell. But Arnold Freeberg is part of that tradition. And so I think a lot of the way his art looks the way he does is based on that training. And so he had gone to school at Chicago Academy of Fine Art, Grand Central School of Art. He had built a bit of a name of himself by illustrating calendars of Canadian Mounties is what he's really well known for. His wife at the time was sick and the doctor said a drier climate would really be better for her. And so he came to Salt Lake, but he had contacted all the artists and he came, he was going to work at the University of Utah as a commercial art instructor. And he had big ideas. He came to Salt Lake. He was going to tell the story of Joseph Smith. He said, I'm going to turn that guy into an American hero is what he had in his mind. But he kind of found that there just wasn't a lot of interest in spending a lot of money on art. And so he was trying to figure out what to do until Adele Cannon House came along. Well, thank you so much for that. And it sounds like he came to the right place at the right time and has obviously had an impact on the church. Sometimes there are criticisms leveled at his work. There are people who are maybe frustrated with the way his work is depicted. How do you think this chapter will help readers better understand his underlying approach to the art? Well, he's one of the best at what he does. Again, he's trained as a magazine illustrator. He's trained to make Epic the Incidental. And man, does he do a great job of making Epic the Incidental. He had created this whole new race of beings, right, in his work. And the stories that he and Adele Cannon Howells kind of brainstormed together are ones they thought would capture the imagination of primary children. And so he has these moments that make these Book of Mormon prophets look heroic. And that was part of what he was doing. People often notice these gladiator figures, giant muscular figures that he depicted. When we've got Nephi, who certainly was large of stature, but now this teenage boy is depicted as this bodybuilder is how people have often seen these paintings. Now, I think part of that Arnold Freeberg said that he was trying to be indicative of their spirituality, the spirit within. I think it's also rooted in his training as a magazine illustrator. They were creating exciting moments. They were making epic these stories, and he wanted to turn them into heroes. That was going to connect with kids and give them something to look up to by creating these spiritual people, not necessarily rooted in any sort of thoughts about pre-Columbian places. He certainly did research and tried to create the best stories that he could have. But that's the point. He was trying to create a story and something that would make it exciting for kids. Well, Laura, the thought behind the painting seems rather impressive. What do we know about how the paintings were received by Latter-day Saints when they were published? Incredibly popular and really useful. <laughs> Again, they hadn't really ever had stories illustrated. And pretty immediately, those who received the paintings and those who were putting out the paintings saw their use. It's going to create a lot of 
art and it will change the direction of where art goes in the next couple decades. Well, thank you so much for that. And thank you both so much for joining us. It's been so interesting to get these extra insights. I just wonder if both of you might just take a moment to share with us anything that surprised you in this chapter as you read it, both maybe the the subjects that you're specialists in or perhaps something else in the chapter. I kind of have a bit of a story and some source material I could share. This goes back to Czechoslovakia a little bit. And there's several people to choose from that we could highlight. Again, saints can't highlight everyone. But as there was discussion going on about who to highlight here for this scene, I did a little bit of digging around in some of the source material just to give a few recommendations. And I came across this quote that we have from Teresia Wojkovkova that just stunned me. We have this quote thanks to a report that Wallace Toronto submitted to the First Presidency. Even though he and Martha had gone back to Utah, they still sort of acted as mission president and companion in exile. And kudos to them and to their missionaries. They kept in touch as best as they could with their saints in Czechoslovakia to find out how they were doing, to try and help them if they could. And in his report, Wallace added excerpts of letters from these Czechoslovakian saints to the Torontos and to some of their missionaries. He translated them to English. I tried to find the original letter for this one from Terezia Vokovkova, but we just have the excerpts here in English in this report. I'll just quote from this letter here a little bit more than that's in the, in the chapter. She talks about how we very much miss our branch meetings and religious services. The Sundays are long and without spirit when we cannot share our feelings and testimonies with others. Nevertheless, we feel that the Lord has not forsaken us, for he continues to bless us in many miraculous ways. Another excerpt here. I'm very happy that the temple work for my parents has been completed. I feel that I can now peacefully join them without fear of avoiding my responsibility to them. They are perhaps much happier than we are here who have not had an opportunity to go through the temple and have our children sealed to us. The members of the church in Zion, which means Utah, I dare venture to say do not appreciate the great privilege that they have to live so close to the temple of the Lord. This is the experience of European Latter-day Saints at this time period. They don't have a temple. They don't have stakes. But they live so faithfully, they live worthily to go to the temple. This is their drive, their dream. And it's all the much more tender here because of the situation in Czechoslovakia. And I just found this letter. It's not so often that you get to hear someone's voice like that to speak to you through words written on a page. But that really spoke to me, and I'm glad that we were able to include it here in this chapter. Thank you, James. For me, the stories of people just trying to fulfill their callings and go about building the kingdom and then somehow change it in pretty incredible ways are always inspiring to me. The stories that James share, Adele Cannon Howells is one of my kind of like just little quiet little heroes. Now, she's the primary general president, so it's a pretty big thing. But basically, she felt inspired and said, we can do better teaching kids scripture stories. I want to somehow think about how we can get kids scripture stories. And with a lot, a lot of angels coming to declare the way and things being really easily opening up, she just says, I feel this is important. She's inspired within her own calling. She makes it happen. She passes away before she sees any of these paintings done to completion. And all of us know these paintings. Every single person, right, has somehow seen these paintings in some context within the church. And so that 
is incredible to me. All the missionary work that happens in response to these paintings, the people that are gathered in because of these paintings, because she just was inspired to solve this little small problem within the context of her calling. That's pretty incredible to me that sometimes when I'm doing my little calling, and I'll be honest, I'm the primary chorister at the moment. I sing terribly. I don't know how to lead music. And so I'm just trying to solve these tiny little problems within the context of my calling. But the ripple effects, how God magnifies that, the grace that he gives us to make our efforts enough, that's what I see in the stories of Adele Cannon House. Just one thought, piggybacking off of what Laura said, we're all supposed to be united together in the body of Christ, right? We all have a part to play. And that's the wonderful thing we get to see in saints. We have all these wonderful examples of saints from around the world trying to do the best that they can in sometimes very incredible circumstances. And it's not clear to them what the outcome is going to be, but they move forward. And whether we're a primary chorister or someone trying to preserve their faith in a country where might not have as much freedom to express that faith, Just like Paul talks about in the New Testament, one part of the body can't say to the other, we don't need you. Well, we should not say to ourselves, we're not needed as well. We have something to contribute, and it's not up to us to say that we don't have a part to play. We're all needed, and the Lord can use us all. Absolutely. Well, Laura and James, thank you so much for meeting with us today. I just personally love to hear more about particular characters in the book or particular situations and experience that the saints are going through around the world. And so we're grateful that you took the time to spend with us today and share your additional insights and perspectives. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for having us. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. We hope you enjoyed it. We hope you took away some new insights into this volume. And we would love to hear your thoughts, opinions, questions, and insights from this chapter of Saints. And you can email saintspodcast at churchofjesuschrist.org. It would be great to hear from you.